when I stand firm in God's word and the truth, then no lie of the enemy can really um, can really affect me in any way because I'm already victorious through Jesus Christ. Good day, everyone. This is the B-side following our message in Numbers 22 through 25 entitled Defense Against the Dark Arts. This episode, we'll be looking at spiritual warfare. And coming up, we are going to have a conversation with our children's ministry director, Gio Montoya, about spiritual warfare in his own life. And then I will uh, take us through Ephesians 6 and what Paul says about spiritual warfare. But first, we have... Sunday's message to summarize in 60 seconds or less. Balak, king of Moab, is fearful of the Israelites who are right next door to him. So he hires this prophet named Balaam to curse them. But while Balaam looks out over the people, he sees their camps around the tabernacle in the shape of what probably was a cross. And he cannot curse them, for when he tries, it comes out as a blessing. Man curses, God blesses. Jesus went to the cross for us as a curse so that we can be blessed in Christ. And Jesus showed us how. Humility. Balaam had to learn humility as his donkey humbled him before the nobles of Moab. That's how he was able to speak blessing. That's how God was able to use him to bless the world, or to bless Israel. God will use us to bless the world when we, too, learn to walk in humility. Just as Christ came down to become a servant, he learned humility, and then God exalted him. I think I experienced spiritual warfare through my mind, through my feelings, and just the way my body feels overall. Um, many times it comes in in a form of depression um, because uh, if uh, my mind starts to believe the lies, it's like it digests everything into my spirit and my soul, and then my whole body begins to take in all the um, all that that spiritual warfare and really doesn't know what to do with it so it begins to I think build a distrust in the truth in God um, and and dwells on those lies that, that the enemy feeds us many times is this something that happens what daily weekly is it seasonal how, how do you how often does this happen it um, it depends it depends what seasons I'm going through um, and it, it's it's just like anything else. It's uh, maintaining uh, my spiritual life. The times that I have most experienced it is when um, I get so busy or entangled with the things of life that I I um, don't maintain my uh, relationship with the Lord as as good as I should be, and so my my body begins to feel it. it begins it starts with the spirit, but then it go it kind of grows outward, and mm-hmm. then my mind, body, and soul everything starts to feel it in my life. It's like a a car that lacks maintenance, basically, and so if it lacks maintenance, eventually it's going to start to break down in different areas, and not the whole thing breaks down. 
more than anything is like little things start going out like maybe a light bulb in a dash or something like that and so that's kind of how it is for me is um when I don't guard and just uh, nurture my relationship with the Lord uh, what starts to happen is um that little lights start to come up here and there warning lights if we may call it that um and then eventually my body gets to a place where it just breaks down and it yeah. really tells me yeah so if you don't pay attention to the warning signs eventually affects everything in your life yes yes because when it when that spiritual warfare does come full uh, head on what really happens is that um i i sh- i basically shut down mentally physically emotionally and it just it's a complete breakdown so when you see those warning lights on your dashboard go off, uh, what do you need to do? What should you do right away? Uh, you, what I do, um, and it's a little different for everybody else. It might be a little different for everybody else, but what I usually do is I, I go back and check on what is it that I'm doing the most? What is it, what is it that I'm devoting most time to? And what do I need to draw back from? And what do I need to engage more into? Most of the time what it's going to be is that I'm not uh, giving in enough um, quality time with the Lord, which means getting in the Word in quality time. I'm not just talking about reading and getting through it and rushing through it, but rather really dwelling on it and just um, getting into prayer, engaging in prayer and conversation with God and, and seeing where He's leading me for for that day or for that for that month or whatever it may be. So... So when you're feeling affected by spiritual warfare, do you see that as a fault of your own? Like, I haven't been praying enough or reading scripture deeply enough. Or do you think that, do you see it as happening to you just in waves, no matter how how you're doing? Yeah, I think uh, it, it definitely happens in waves, no matter how I'm doing. But the waves are going to come and, and it's going to be up to me whether I'm going to be ready for the waves or not because mm. uh, um, the word does tell us that we're already victorious. I mean, when those waves come, and am I going to choose to trust in the Lord? Am I going to choose to uh, go back to the word? I think about Jesus in, in, um when he is baptized and he receives the Holy Spirit and is taken out into the wilderness by the Spirit, um, taken out into the wilderness, and uh, the uh, the enemy tempts him. And he tempts him with the word of God, but he answers back with the word of God. And so <laughs> he stands firm in what uh, he knew was true. And I think uh, when those waves do come, because they're going to come, um, when when I when I stand firm in God's word and the truth, then no lie of the enemy can really um, can really affect me anyway, because I'm already victorious through Jesus Christ. I really like that connection you just made. Uh, Jesus in the wilderness. That was spiritual warfare, wasn't it? Yes. He's, he's in full-on hand-to-hand combat with the devil. Yet, he didn't do anything wrong to be in that situation. No, he didn't. So sometimes spiritual warfare comes out of the blue, even when we do have our heads on right. But yeah, those are times when we need to double down and maybe dig deeper. And as you said... We're all in the word always so that when those moments come, the surprise ambush, we have a defense. Yes. Yes. I, and that's so important because I think a lot of times uh, we think in the uh, in the terms of, well, when it comes, then 
then I'll get in the Word. When it comes, then I'll get in prayer. But it's so important that uh, for myself, at least, that I prepare ahead of time. And I'm always mm-hmm. in the Word. So when that time does come, I'm ready for it. And it's not, it's so hard to, when you're already engaged in spiritual warfare, to try and get back what you didn't have to begin with. Um, and to try to get on your feet. It's just, it's just not as easy as um, you're already in the Word. You're already in prayer. You're already firm in what you know. And then something comes and doesn't, it doesn't hit you as hard. Gio Montoya, our children's ministry director, co-director, don't forget Sonia, (laughs) sharing with us on spiritual warfare. Thanks, Gio. All right, so now on a much more serious matter, the true dark arts of the devil. It would be a miss not to go to Ephesians 6 at this point. Now, in our application of the message, we talked about humility. Balaam was humbled. Humbled before the nobles as his donkey made him look like a fool in front of people he wanted to impress. We too need to walk in humility, which we define as first, knowing our position. Paul's letter to the Ephesians is all about that, knowing your position. And he comes out crystal clear in the first chapter, in him, in him, in him, he says over and over, we are in Christ. Chapter 2, we are seated with Christ in the heavenly places. This is our position. Knowing that I am in Christ, that I need Christ, that he is the true vine and I am the branch and all of my energy, all of my sustenance, all of my bearing fruit, all of my ability to love, my very existence itself, my breath, my being is a direct result of him. That is knowing my position. That's humility. I am not an equal to God. God is not my rival. When my will competes with his will, He becomes a rival, which means I become his equal, which means I am no longer in humility. I am out of position. To know our position is humility, that he's God and we rely entirely on him. We need him. Great Christians are not those who achieve great things for God. They are those who receive great things from God. The only way to receive great things from God is to recognize that you need them. That is humility. The second part. So first, know your position. Second, stay in your position. So if I am in Christ, the key to life is to stay in Christ. This is where spiritual warfare comes into play. I am convinced that it is the goal of Satan to get me out of Christ. And I don't think that that means that he can somehow take my salvation away from me. That's not what I'm saying. 
but it's to take me out of that position of humility and out of that protection of the blessings of God. That he wants me to live in such a way that I'm not identifying myself as someone who's in Christ, that I am not relying on Christ. He wants me to stand alone, to stand outside of that, to start relying upon my own resources, my own power, dealing with people I can't stand in situations I can't handle in my own manner, the way I would habitually react to it in my old self. That's what spiritual warfare is um, about in Ephesians. Um, it's about the battle for will we stand in Christ or will we walk into our own strength? Remember the picture of Israel camping around the tabernacle, how the tribes, uh, three in the north, three on the east, three in the south, and three in the west, would have formed a cross with the tabernacle at the very center, the presence of God at the center. As long as Israel was there, God was covering them. Balaam could not curse the people who were there in that protective covering of God. But if they could lure the people of Israel away from there and go into the Midianite and Moabite pagan worship festivals and hang out with their girls, that was where Israel got in trouble. And this is what spiritual warfare is trying to do, is pull us out of position. And it seems very clear that that's what's on Paul's mind as he says, uh, stand four times. So this is this is how it reads in Ephesians 6. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might, right? There's humility, his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil or the wiles of the devil or the tricks. See, the devil cannot directly overpower us, but he can lure us out of that place which we were told to stand. Put on the armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes, the tricks, the wiles of the devil. Verse 12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. Therefore, because those things exist and want to lure us out of position, therefore, take up the whole armor of God. That, once again, second time he's telling us to take up the armor of God, second time he's giving us a reason. That you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. And now for the fourth time, verse 14, Stand there for. I love this. This is all about standing your ground, staying in position. The word humility comes from the Latin word hummus or humus, which meant ground. To be humble is to know your grounding, is to know your place. And this is what Paul is encouraging us to do, is stand your ground, walk in humility, remain in Christ, fully relying on his strength. That's what his armor is. It's not the armor of Brandon using my skill, my ingenuity, my talents, my cleverness, my knowledge. None of those things. 
It's the armor of God using his resources, which Paul will now define for us uh, through the metaphor of actual armor, going through different pieces that a Roman soldier would wear. He's now um, using that imagery to tell us what are the resources that God gives to us. They are these. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, and as shoes for your feet, having put on the readiness given by the gospel of peace. In all circumstances, take up the shield of faith with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil one, and take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God. Praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. Truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, word of God. And if you count prayer as I do, even though it's not associated with any armor, but it's still part of the sentence, then we have seven tools that God has given us. What's unique about these, truth, righteousness, gospel of peace, faith, salvation, word of God, and prayer, is that these are the resources God has given us to keep us grounded so that we can stand firm. And the armor that Paul relates them to, correlates them to, um, yeah, there's some cool insights to why truth might be a belt and righteousness a breastplate and so forth, but that's not going to be my focus right now. Um, right now, I just want to look at the fact that a belt, a breastplate, shoes, a shield, and a sword, and a helmet, these are not offensive weapons. These are not weapons you go and attack an enemy with. These are not weapons you leave your ground and go and get the enemy these are all defensive weapons. They're armor used for when you hold your ground, the enemy cannot penetrate and pierce the lines of the army. The Romans were famous for their military tactics. That's why they took over the world. Nobody could conquer the Roman army as long as they marched in order and did what they were told to do. And when they stood their ground, they were impossible to stop. So first, you have their shields, right? They're huge. They're, they're like five-foot shields. They basically cover the whole human, and they would interlock so that as you had the front row, they would make a wall, shield locking into shield, so that the shields become a steel wall right there, portable in the middle of battle. Then you would have on their feet, they would have these shoes with hobnails in the bottom, ancient cleats, right? Ancient baseball cleats, so that they could dig their feet into the ground and not be moved when the enemy armies pushed against the shield wall. Then they had the helmet on their heads, which was not convenient in fighting hand-to-hand combat. It would have been bulky and it would have limited your vision. But when you were behind the, sh- the shield wall, the helmet was important because when enemies try to jump over the shield wall and attack you from the top, your head was protected. This is the equipment of someone who's trying to stand their ground, to stay in position. But, but, 
But what about the sword, you're asking? Isn't that an offensive weapon? Yes, you would normally think of it as such. But there were two types of swords. And the Greek here, if I remember right, it's rhema. And it refers to a short sword, not the long, broad sword that you would use to uh, try to uh, attack your enemy with. Um, this was a very short sword, maybe about 18 inches long, that you would hold at your belt. And it was only used for hand-to-hand combat. When the, If the shield wall for some reason broke down and you were face-to-face with the enemy, this sword was your last resort. You attacked, Romans attacked with the spear instead. It was longer, it could go sh- longer distances, and you could keep your enemy away. So even the sword, even the sword was a defensive tool here. And so what is Paul wanting us to do? He's wanting us to stand firm, stand your ground. Do not leave truth, righteousness, the peace of the gospel, faith, salvation, the word of God in prayer. These will help you to stay in Christ. The devil and his schemes are trying to lure us out of position, away from truth, righteousness, the gospel of peace, faith, salvation, word of God and prayer. So, The way in the New Testament that we defend against the dark arts is precisely the way Israel should have done it in Numbers. Stay where you are. They were in the camp. We are in Christ. Everything you need is here. You are in the best possible place. Trust Christ. Trust the armor of God, not yourself. So know your position, stay in position, and we will be grounded or we will be humble, walking in humility. And that is where blessing starts. That is when we can start to give something to the world and to our neighbors and to our family and to our friends and even our enemies. So stay grounded, stand firm, stay humble. I've noticed that Christians are often uncomfortable with the word magic. And I believe that it's because it comes from passages like this in Deuteronomy 18, verse 9. I'm going to read. It's a paragraph, so listen. When you come into the land that the Lord your God is giving you, you shall not learn to follow the abominable practices of those nations. There shall not be found among you anyone who burns his son or daughter as an offering, Anyone who practices divination or tells fortunes or interprets omens or a sorcerer or a charmer or a medium or a necromancer or one who inquires of the dead, for whoever does these things is an abomination to the Lord. And because of these abominations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you. You shall be blameless before the Lord your God for these nations which you are about to dispossess, listen to fortune tellers and to diviners. But as for you, the Lord your God has not allowed you to do this. One thing we need to understand about these terms for 
magic here in the Old Testament is that it's referring to practices which try to tell the future so that the human being can manipulate the the, the course of his life. It's also talking about communication with the dead uh, so that often you can find out what is going to happen in the future. You may remember King Saul doing that. He um, calls up Samuel from the dead to find out what's going to happen in battle. So what God is condemning is uh, getting in touch with darkness or something that's not him to determine the future. I say this because I don't want us to be afraid of words which are used innocently in culture. For example, we have the Chronicles of Narnia. They use the word magic. Often fairy tales will have magic. Or we will describe a process or something that amazes us as magical. Now, we don't literally mean that the dark arts of Satan's horde are working behind the scenes. I also don't want to belittle that because there can be some scary stuff. I'm not very familiar with the occult um, and real-life witches, but um, I don't want to be. And I'm, I've heard things that can be scary. Yeah, we don't want to belittle that at all. But nor do we have to go berserk if a fairy tale says magic. <laughs> um, I'm saying all this because I, I hope that nobody was concerned by the opening comments in the message. I, I, I heard from one, at least one person that there was maybe a little bit of confusion. I was just trying to set up the main point that if we want to bless the world, we have to stop manipulating people and things around us and start serving, just as Christ did. So I was referring to magic um, in a negative sense and in a powerful sense as manipulation. And that's really what the devil wants to do. He wants to manipulate everything in God's world. He wants to hijack. He wants to take over. And it seems that when there are magicians in the Bible, like Simon in Acts, I think it's 8, um, or Balaam here in, in Numbers, um, that that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to alter the course of destiny that God has planned for their own or for someone else's purposes. And so that's that's what we were condemning. Now, the, the Gospels refer to Jesus as working miracles. Um, and... Uh, I think the best way to look at a distinction there is that miracles usually refer to a transformation. Yeah, magic can refer to a transformation too, but magic can be confused with what's the source. Well, a miracle is very clear. A miracle comes from God. And so they use the word miracle so there's no confusion about what Jesus is doing. He's doing this through God's power, uh, through his own power, and he's doing it to transform others, not to manipulate the forces of nature or the will of people around him for his own purposes so he can grow in power, quite the opposite. He is giving off his power to others. In fact, um, I think it's in Luke, where, where the woman who has the flow of blood for 12 years reaches out and touches the hem of his garment. Uh, I remember the King James Version says, I have felt virtue, leave me. Or the word there is power. I have felt power, leave me. See, Jesus was giving power to people to build them up, to bless them. 
But when we use our power to take things from people and to give it to ourselves, that is a curse. That's cursing the world around us. It's making life miserable. It's putting me at the center. And that is really at the heart of what the devil wants to do in the world. Our phrase, hocus pocus, which we often use um, to refer to magic or, or things that magicians do, when we say a, a magician does a trick and transforms, you know, uh, I don't know, he pulls the bunny out of the hat or something, we, we call it hocus pocus. It means something changed, something happened there, the magician did a trick. What's interesting about that phrase is that it actually originates from a Christian mass back in the medieval times when uh, the Catholic Church would do their masses in Latin. There was this phrase that the priest would repeat every week, and the common people who didn't know Latin would hear this phrase, and they would jumble it up. Uh, the phrase was when the priest would hold up the wafer and say, this is my body. Christ saying, this is my body. In the Latin, he would say, hoc est corpus. And so every week they would hear the priest holding up the cracker, the bread, the wafer, and hear hoccus corpus, hoccus corpus. And the common people understood that there was some sort of a transformation happening, right? That here is the presence of Christ among us. And they would go, uh, they, they would, tend to repeat the phrase in the way that they could as commoners. So hocus corpus uh, gradually became hocus pocus. Hocus corpus. Hocus pocus. That was to them magical. That the life of Christ could be present in an ordinary church service on earth. That God could give us grace and forgive us of our sins. That was magic. That human lives could transform from hating to loving. That murderers could be humbled. That thieves could become generous. That was magic. Yeah, not magic from the devil or from the dark arts. But what we would call a miracle. The transformational power of God at work in human lives. That's where the phrase Hocus Pocus came from. So I don't want us to be terrified of the word magic. Um, you know, I think sometimes preaching is magical. Like I'm doing all this preparation and um, sometimes it comes out far more powerfully than I ever imagined it would. Or you feel the spirit working. Uh, yeah, there's something there that's beyond me. It's God. You know, I wouldn't, I wouldn't say, oh, that sermon was a miracle, nor would I call it magic in a literal magic way, but I can say that it feels magical, right? It's just, it's like, it's something else is happening. There's more here than the sum of the parts. The Holy Spirit is at work. And now to close as we do each episode with a preview of next Sunday's passage that you can be reading beforehand and some things you can look for while you read. Um, golly, I have no clue where this message is going, and I haven't had a, the slightest clue uh, for a lot of weeks. 
looking at these chapters coming up, I've been going, oh man, um, look, reading it was fine, but it's just, it's kind of all over the place and it's not exactly, these chapters aren't exactly anything that's going to make anyone's top 100 chapters. Uh, it's just kind of closing up a very dismal part of Israel's history. And, um, right before we get to Deuteronomy where Moses gives his last words. So, but here's what we see. We start off in chapter 26 where there's a census where they're counting the people 20 years and older. And you might remember numbers started that way. So this is the second census, which means we're now at the new generation, right? The terrible, horrible, no good, very bad 40-year death march through the wilderness has come to a close. One generation has died off. The new generation is here. It's time for a new census. When you look, when you compare the numbers, um, Israel's only 2,000 fewer for the wear. So they've, they've done pretty well. Uh, but then it starts to go into chapter 27. You have, um, daughters wanting an inheritance, sort of a technical thing where it's saying that, well, then you should marry within your tribe to keep your land. But the, the interesting thing and important thing in chapter 27 is, uh, God tells Moses that it's time. It's time to die, buddy. Uh, you've had a good run. Moses says, uh, please don't let me go before there's a successor. And God names Joshua. It says, take Joshua, the son of Nun, a man in whom is the spirit. And so Joshua becomes the officially ordained or anointed successor to Moses. Now, what I think is interesting is though verse 12 says that it's time for Moses to go up to the mountain and then when he's up there and he sees the promised land, he will be gathered to his people. In other words, he'll die. Um, it doesn't actually happen for a long time. So this is chapter 27 of Numbers. Numbers ends in chapter 36. Then you have the entire book of Deuteronomy where Moses is giving four sermons, four farewell addresses, and then he finally dies at the end of Deuteronomy. This is this is a guy who's really dragging his heels about uh, coming to his end. Although probably a better way to see that is actually Moses knows the importance of finishing well, and he's got to get some things in order and give his final words before he makes that final ascent up the mountain. That's one of the things I, I'll be thinking about, at least personally, as I read through these final chapters. Uh, chapter 28 tells us about um, offerings, daily offerings, Sabbath offerings, monthly offerings. Then it goes through the seven festivals of Israel and on into chapter 29 about the various offerings. So it's not describing the festivals. It's specifically talking about what animals and how many were to be offered during all of these parts of the calendar. Um, so a bit of review and a bit tedious. And chapter 30, we have vows, men and women. Um... Yeah, very, um, you read it and you're like, okay, there's not really much we can talk about here for us. But then I remember Jesus talking about vows and saying, um, do not swear by the temple or the gold of the, te by the, gold of the temple, but let your yes be yes and your no be no. Um, that's in the Sermon on the Mount. I think it's Matthew 5. And, um, it reminds me that, yeah, we need to use our words seriously. And then I started to think, we often call cuss words swear words. Um, I think the thing that's bothersome about cuss words is that 
that's what they are. They're swear words. They're, they're words we use when we don't feel like our honest words are good enough. We have to somehow um, qualify our statement by throwing a strong word with it. So in the same way you say, I, this really happened, I swear, people will throw uh, strong language into what they say to have it, to give it more weight, which just implies that you feel like your own words don't have enough weight, which then causes me to question your integrity. Um, then in chapter 31, we have vengeance on Midian. And this is where we learn in verse 16 that it was Balaam who gave advice. It says, Behold, these, on Balaam's advice, caused the people of Israel to act treacherously against the Lord in the incident of Peor. And so the plague came among the congregation of the Lord. So, um, yeah, they get vengeance because, remember, the Midianite women lured Israel. And it was Balaam's advice that did it. So they had a victory there. And then it talks about how to divide the possessions that they got in war. Chapter 32 is the most interesting in all of these chapters. And it's where Reuben and Gad and half the tribe of Manasseh decide to claim their inheritance on the east side of the Jordan River, where Israel is at the moment. In other words, before they actually cross over the river and into the technical promised land, Reuben, Gad, and half of Manasseh want their inheritance now. So uh, they get it before the rest of the people go into the promised land. Moses wants to make sure that they are going to still fight as they go into the promised land. They're not leaving the rest of the tribes out to do it on their own. So, yeah, if you guys want to settle here, you can settle here but you still have an obligation to help your brothers. Um, chapter 33 becomes a travelogue, quite literally a travelogue. It's just, we camped here, then we camped here, then we camped here. Um, yeah. If you want to make it interesting, try to map those spots on a map. On a map. I definitely didn't try, but it might be interesting. If you do it, please show me. I would love to see the fruit of your labor. Chapter 34, the boundaries of the land, which um, tend to be kind of general and vague, but it gives them, it gives a sort of the strip of land uh, between the Jordan River and the Mediterranean Sea. Then we have a list of tribes and chiefs. Then the cities in chapter 35, the cities for the Levites. So the Levites don't get an inheritance. The Lord is their inheritance. The tabernacle, the temple, working in his presence is their inheritance. So um, there's technically 13 tribes, right? Uh, because Levi doesn't really count. So what happens is Joseph was one of the sons of Jacob, but Joseph's two sons become tribes in order to make up for the not technically a tribe Levi. <laughs> if that makes any sense. So we have 12 tribes of Israel plus the Levites. Uh, so they don't get an inheritance. They instead are donated cities by each tribe. Now, that's pretty cool because you have the Levites, the people who work for God, uh, kind of mingled around the land. There's no centralized place of power for them. They are out and about and everywhere with, with common life, common people. Uh, otherwise, you could imagine them kind of establishing a hierarchy for themselves. But yeah, they get their own cities and they're amongst all the tribes. And then in verse 9 of chapter 35, you see the cities of refuge where um, you can flee if you accidentally murder somebody, keyword is accidentally. So I guess it wouldn't be murder, accidentally kill. And 
Chapter 36, the last chapter, we come back to the female heirs, the same daughters of Zelophad, um, asking more questions about do we get an inheritance? How does it work when we get married and so forth? So kind of interesting. You, you in a sense begin with that question and you end with that question. I looked at that. There seems to be no, um, literary structure that has any significance. So, um, not much to say there. So with that, uh, you can pray for me as I prepare because, um, yeah, I love teaching. Um, but I want to also have something to preach, something to say, something that, uh, encourages us and challenges us to walk with Christ this week. So I don't want to just make this a history lesson. I want to make this about life today. So yeah, I'd love to hear what you guys are seeing in these chapters. Of course, you can always email me at Brandon McCulloch at calvarychapel.com. Uh, so looking forward to seeing everyone on Sunday.